Welcome to the Bearded Tits podcast, the nature-based show hosted by me, Jack Perks. Each week I'm joined by a guest from the world of wildlife television, art and science. We take a light-hearted look into what makes these people tick and connect with the natural world so strongly, with new episodes out every Tuesday. In this week's show, I'm talking to BBC Natural History Unit producer James Brickle, who's worked on a host of acclaimed TV series, such as Life in Cold Blood, The Great Barrier Reef, Deadly 60, and many more. I do this podcast for free, and I want to keep it that way, but if you're feeling extra generous today, there's a link in the description to buymeacoffee.com, and you can help the podcast out by donating £3 or more to keep it going. If you could also leave a review, that really helps the podcast out. We're on Spotify, iTunes, you name it. Today, myself and James waffle about how we met, what it's like working with David Attenborough, the career path to being a producer, and what moments really stood out to him travelling across the globe. Here's our chat. So welcome to the podcast, James. Thank you, Jack. It's how been you a doing? while. I'm doing, I'm doing really well, apart from my arm. But, um, yeah, you were telling me about that. You tried to fight a younger man in, on the rugby pitch. <laughs> I'm no fighting. I'm too old for fighting. I'm too old for playing rugby. I tried to tackle a larger, younger, bigger uh, person, ran out of talent and detached the um, detached my bicep tendon. And actually, when I had an operation on it and the surgeon came in and he said, um, he looked at his notes and he, he hadn't really acknowledged, he hadn't looked at me in the eye yet. So he looks at his notes and he's going, um, yeah, detached distal bicep tendon rupture, rugby, yeah, all fine. And he goes, hang on a minute, says he, your date of birth, 1974, that can't be true. And I looked up and took one look at my um, battered, balding pate and said, you're way too, bit too old to be playing rugby, so it's my own fault. But other than that, <laughs> I'm, on fine, I'm on fine form. How are you? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm not too um, too bad at all. We should probably just quickly mention how we uh, how we know each other, which is through the Great British Year, which I'm not sure if anyone will might remember it now, but it's 2013. It was a wildlife series that you were producer. Were you head producer or? Yeah, I was series producer. Series right? producer. OK. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was one of those series that execs at the BBC sell saying, It'll be just like Frozen Planet. It'll be exactly like Frozen Planet, but in Britain. And someone buys it, someone at the BBC in their naivety says, yeah, we'll, 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 you, you can make that. That's a great idea. And they didn't tell them it's a tenth of the budget of Frozen Planet. <laughs> um, and that's where I met you because you were, I can't remember where I came across you, but we were looking to film. How did I contact you? Because we were looking to film fish. And yeah. I can't remember how i found you so the way it was all by chance really it was just a tweet you put a tweet out and it was something like we're looking for camera ops with ideas and and whatnot free, free and, labor yeah but, well yeah more not far off and um and, and i just got in touch because that was my very first bbc you know you were my foot in the door with the bbc really and i got in touch and after pitching bits and bobs we went with um chub chub eating blackberries didn't we i know it was a such memorable day it was beautiful weather and uh, spit, I seem to remember a Spitfire being involved, flying over the top of us. Do you remember that? Oh, um, I didn't until you mentioned it, but I do vaguely remember something like yeah. that. Because I remember I was absolutely bricking it on that day because obviously I was 21, fresh out of uni. And I was like, oh, don't fuck this up. You know, so I think the only thing, I mean, it was basically carrying bags. And I, I, I touched a GoPro at one point was about the extent of it. But I still thought, don't want to fuck anything up. And it was, I think you were sketching by the river. I don't know if you remember this. You were sketching 
just a little thing in your little notebook. And I can't remember who the camera op was, but you had a cameraman with you as well. And it was quite serene and there were goldfinches and it was just really lovely. And then all of a sudden there was a, and I don't know if it was you or the camera, but one of you had this rip roaring <laughs> fart, really cracking <laughs> fart. And um, you can't and invite it, me on a podcast, and accuse me of flatulence. And well, I can guarantee well, it definitely wasn't me, Jack. Okay. Well, I'm not accusing you. I'm just putting you up there with the suspects. But I just thought that it cut the tension beautifully. Anyway, that's the point. I'm praising you for your flatulence because it made me feel so much more at ease. Because I was like, oh, okay, they are human. That's great. So. We'll start. So we've, with got, we've got farting and rugby in, uh, so that's good. Yeah, we'll um, pr- probably talk I, about wildlife at some point, but <laughs> yeah, no, it was a memorable day, and you're you're so passionate about your freshwater fish. Um, and the more, I mean, in lockdown, I've been uh, like so many people taking to rivers and got into wild swimming, and yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, and and actually, everyone suddenly noticed that rivers aren't in a great state in the UK. If there's a silver lining to the cloud that is COVID. Uh, it will be that people have gone, hang on a minute, our rivers aren't supposed to be like this, actually. Definitely, yeah. they're, they're in a, a horrible... And we've, we've had people on the sh- show before talking about Fergal Sharky and a, a few others who've really gone down that that rabbit hole. But we're yeah. mentioning the, the Great British Year. So was that the first UK series that you'd worked on? And if it no, wasn't... It, it wasn't. No, okay. no, the very first thing I did was called Watch Out, which no one that is listening to this will will probably i'll be very surprised if they saw it it was even lower budget than the great british year it was a proving ground it was very cheap it was only about 15 minutes long it was on a slot on bbc2 that hardly anyone watched it had all these avant-garde ideas and because it had low viewing figures low budget it was low it was low risk you know there wasn't a lot riding on it so a lot of real maverick young producers worked on it and i got my first gig on it and the um the series producer was was a legend and um he was very creative quite keen to offload all the hard hard work and heavy lifting onto young thrusting young producers and directors <laughs> and um and i got my chance to work with you know some of the industry uh greats like uh you know graham booth and mark brownlow and people like that and um simon king was a presenter on it met him and it was British wildlife, but it was, it was, it, we, some of the stuff was actually quite weird. I remember Graham Booth did a scene about bloody nose beetles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Tarantino, the Tarantino film had just come out, his first big smash, what was it called? Reservoir Dogs. Right. And do you remember the, the, the poster was like those guys in black and there was lots of blood spurting everywhere. So he filmed these bloody nose beetles walking. He got a part of Buddy Nose Beatles. He filmed them walking on white paper, cut to Tarantino-esque music with blood spattering everywhere. And that was that was the scene. That was it. And it sounds brilliant. It was really creative and kind of cool and a bit kooky. So yeah. So it was a very different beast from the Great British Year, but it was good fun and some lovely, very creative opportunities on that show. Well, I guess it's good to get those juices flowing, you know, an experiment and some things will hit and some things won't, I guess, but it's good to at least try it out. And if they didn't work, no one was watching it anyway. So it's fine. <laughs> oh, like so many things I've done. Well, I don't know about that. You've done some some fantastic programs over the years. So, uh, how how are they different to the blue chip stuff you've done then? So like with the with the Great British Year and, and that sort of stuff. Apart from budget, obviously, is there a, a different um, process behind it? Yeah, it's a completely different process actually. And I'm I suppose I would be unusual in our industry in that I've worked on 
more documentary presenter-led style shows which in the industry you'll hear phrases like kick, kick bollocks scramble or down and dirty tv which is doing it a bit of a disservice because it's it's sort of um it's tough they're tough shows to make you've got to get them quickly they're generally generally lower budget and then you've got blue blue chip programs which is an industry term for basically stuff that's wildlife sequences that stand alone and the mentality if you work with people like you know planet earth 2 the producers on that people like um chad and hunter and freddie devas you know their skill and the, and the dops they work with their what they're trying to do is remove any excuse for um that shot being as close to cinematic perfection with the animal doing what it says in the script and and that I, I'm going to rather flippantly say that's all there is to it. Like that's easy. Yeah. I mean, course. there's then a million things that can screw that shot up. Uh, wrong lens, wrong camera, wrong place, wrong time, wrong weather, wrong angle, wrong temperature, and then all the gazillion things that an animal can do. That will, and it, and um, you know, as we know, if you let wildlife know what you're up to, it'll it'll take every opportunity to bugger it up for you. Yeah. So that that's blue chip in a nutshell is is cinematic perfection. So it's it's not giving up easy. It's pursuit, pursuit, pursuit. It failed. Go back to the drawing board. Tweak it. Tweak the plan. Tweak the plan. Tweak the plan. It's uh, in rugby terminology. It's being the All Blacks. It's it's just not giving up until you get the perfect shot, and that that can happen easy if you've done your research you're working with good scientists the people to help you you've got the right dops it'll happen easily sometimes it happens easily sometimes it never happens and but but usually it's somewhere in between and as a producer director you're you're problem solving the other side of the other kinds of productions i work on i find more rewarding in some ways actually is working with presenters or hosts if you're american or documentary stuff which is um, it's less about the sh perfection of shot and more about the emotional, the emotional value of what's going on. So this um, is like Deadly 60 and things like that that you've done. Yeah, Deadly 60. I'm doing a couple of shows now, one which is um, theoretically top secret, although I don't know, you know, I'm sure if you asked anyone in Bristol, they'd know, but I'm not really supposed to go talking about it on a podcast. But, okay. <laughs> um, but um, it'll be coming out soon-ish. But, but those kind of shows where you're trying to work with presenters people public contributors you know that's about capturing moments and being in the right place to see that happening and it's a completely different skill set you often have to compromise photography quite a lot actually and often it's more driven by sound but um yeah it's about an emotional intelligence which is why i think some people find it you know, uh harder to switch some people can do both Others are totally unsuited to uh, they're they're suited to one but not the other. Yeah, yeah. No, I can see that and think I've never really thought about that before. But yeah, when I think back to some of the other producers, I know they tend to be yeah one one or the other really. And I guess that makes it an interesting career choice. And I wondered what is the career path if someone wants to be a wildlife TV producer. So I guess you can only talk about your own experiences. But what's kind of what's got you to where you are today? Then I guess is what I'm trying to say. Oh, hell of a lot of luck, obviously. <laughs> I'm genuinely not that talented, um, but I'm quite good at um, getting on with people. I'm quite good at looking for opportunities. I'm quite um, personable. I 
think I'm pretty good under pressure. Uh, you know, all, all those things come into play. I mean, if you, when I was at the Natural History Unit, I asked a load of my colleagues what their stories were. How, how did you get in? And I sort of compiled them and everyone had a different story. There wasn't a classic route. It's not like production companies generally advertise for a job. And not because that's not a good idea. It's just that if you said, uh, do you want a job working with David Attenborough on a show about sharks? Can you imagine how many uh, <laughs> applications you'd get? And then some poor devil's got to go through them all. And, you know, programs don't have the, the, the infrastructure to do that. So, and, and that's worth knowing, actually, that it's not, it's not like a production company doesn't operate. The business model of a wildlife series is the program. So you've budgeted, pardon that, the woofing's my dog in the background. <laughs> That's okay. If, if, you, um, if, your, if your business model is making something like Planet Earth 2 or The Great British Year or Deadly 60 and you need a researcher, your budget doesn't cover a, a three-month um, talent drive to find the latest researchers. You tend to go with people who are around the industry already. And that's good because it favours people who can get their foot in the door um, but it's bad in the sense that it's been dreadful for diversity. It really has been dreadful for diversity because you, you know, you get you end up with more people alike for people who've come before because they were in the same area doing the same thing, went to the right universities, whatever. Um, but my career path was um, I'm a failed vet. So I sort of played with veterinary science, did really well at GCSE, screwed up my levels. Um, semi-screwed up did enough to go and read zoology which i loved fell on my feet at cardiff university which i loved had fun played rugby wrote to the bbc i couldn't believe there were people that got paid to make wildlife films and i hadn't i hadn't realized that when i was interested in uh, veterinary science and um a very nice man called paul appleby said well come and i think i wrote 18 letters and i got a reply to the 18th and he said, come and have a chat. And he gave me a job on Watch Out. And my, my uh, sort of modus operandi was to, every time anyone asked me to do anything, was to just go, yeah. And then not come back to them with loads of high maintenance questions. No complaining. No like, oh, I don't know how to do that. I just would go away and ask other people. I'd go and bug the hell out of other people. <laughs> and of course, the boss the job would get done and the boss, all the boss knew was I'd done it. Um, and they wouldn't know that I'd had to go and ask 16 people how to access, you know, the BBC's archive system and how to ask permission to film on a farmer's land or I'd rung Simon King and scratched my, and he'd been scratching his head going, well, we could do this, this and this. So all they knew was that I got the job done and I took the problem away from them. And I think that's a pretty good sort of life lesson, but I was, I was very lucky. Um, and I, yeah, I, I suppose that's it. And I, I didn't know anything about telly. I, I mean, everyone coming into the industry now mostly does. I didn't. I was a zoologist. Still am. I'd still classify myself as a zoologist, even though I don't get paid for it. Um, and that was my passion. I think it helps if you're passionate about something. If you yeah. really, yeah. really love something, you're prepared to put up with quite a lot of nonsense to, to get there. And I think you have to be prepared for that in any walk of life um there were lots of people that worked at the bbc while i was there that just couldn't hack all the nonsense and there's just a lot not nothing bad 
and we're not talking me too uh stuff <laughs> okay because i don't yeah i don't want to be announcing any of this just yet uh james no, 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 no. <laughs> literally i've um i've never never uh, <laughs> seen anything like that no it's not that the natural history unit um but you know it's a, it's a big unwieldy organization that's frustrating like yeah. i imagine the nhs and the MOD yeah, yeah. and the places are so you have to put up with a bit of that resilient yeah. resilience is important no definitely really. i think that's true of any any kind of uh, these wildlife careers isn't it like you say there's not really a straight path that you follow whether it's being a camera op or a presenter or a producer researcher whatever there's there's kind of ways you can do it but no two people are going to have the exact same route are they i guess it's just playing to your strengths and and being persistent like you say yeah absolutely and my um if i had a special uh special talent it's meeting random people i'm particularly adept at it and um and and i'll talk to anyone and just follow it where it leads me and that has led to some of the most exciting experiences coolest people interesting opportunities um and and that's it's almost, I don't know if you've ever read Douglas Adams books. He always talks about Zen navigation. Follow someone that looks like where they, they know where they're going. You never know where you're going to lead. It's a bit like that. Um, yeah. So um, that's never a bad thing. Have a plan. Fine. But also be prepared to go and explore somewhere where you went, you know, tomorrow, you don't know, you don't know what opportunity tomorrow will throw you. And if it does, you know, have follow it and see what happens. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, it's good advice and certainly gives you something to think about when you're trying to do it. Uh, two things that you're known for really are the, the diving side of things and snakes, and we'll cover both of those shortly. And, but I want to talk about the underwater world first. You yeah. were, it was he head of the dive unit at the NHU, is that right? Uh, yes, for a yeah. bit. Yeah. Yeah. So what challenges, a simple question, what challenges does underwater filmmaking present? Because obviously it's a whole different kettle of fish, if you excuse the pun to yeah, land, uh, land very photography good. <laughs> very good. well you'll know you'll know uh that for every um for every issue on land there are more issues underwater i'd say it's more complicated there's certainly more issues um environmental issues so uh, above above the ground you're t above the sea you're talking about um wind rain temperature perhaps although not really in the uk unpredictability of weather in the uk is the biggest you know it's not like we get awful weather but we just don't know what it's going to throw us that's about it in the sea add to that um currents which are a huge problem um swell which is if you imagine uh if currents are akin to wind speed and direction swell would be akin to that changing buffeting of the wind which if you're holding a camera is a nightmare because it'll pick you up and you could be anchoring against the current coming to the right and then suddenly it's picked you up from the left and smashed you into a rock or a sea urchin bed in my case was one of the last underwater shoots i did um you've got uh temperatures much more of an issue underwater because of the physics of water um you can you can die of hypothermia in any water that's that's even half a degree cooler than body temperature so water I mean, if you're in it long enough if yeah water water that feels warm that you would swim in in the tropics um you know if you're lucky enough to go to the red sea or maldives or even the mediterranean you jump and you think the water's warm 24 hours in there and you'd start getting even that you would get hypothermic so there's temperatures problem um 
and you can't whiz around with a camera quickly everything has to be waterproofed um getting there you know you can't just i we always used to have a rule of thumb that uh, everything you're filming underwater costs two three four times as much and takes two two three four times as much time and um well i yeah. guess you've got limited time as well like a, a cameraman could sit in a hide all day and wait for um you know the bird to do whatever but an underwater camera can't spend all day underwater can they they're only going to be able to spend a, a limited time there quite um which is why so many of us you, you know rebreathers are such a big thing these days i mean they they were weirdly invented before the the, the scuba uh, regulator but they're more dangerous they're yeah. definitely more dangerous they have the potential to cause harm it's a bit like like i'm trained on the scuba and on a rebreather but but I if I hadn't been scuba diving for three years, I'd comfortably throw a scuba cylinder on and jump in the sea in most places. If you did that with a rebreather and you hadn't used it for three or four years, well, I, I haven't used a rebreather for ages since I trained. If I jumped on a rebreather, I'd probably kill myself. So, you know, there is a difference. Is it that complicated? Is it? Yeah, there's just there's redundancy in a scuba in a scuba scuba setups are so simple. It either gives yeah. you air or it doesn't give you air. If it doesn't give you air, you can see it's not going to give you air. And the other way it can break more lightly is it will just give you a free flow. Your regulator will flow and you breathe off it because you're trying to do that. So, you know, you've got to try pretty hard to kill yourself on scuba. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's you know, if you dive within yourself, there's no reason why you should have a problem. With a rebreather, you're breathing a single uh, mouthful of it, a lungful of air. And there's uh, clever, clever systems that are modifying that lungful of air to add a bit more oxygen, take out CO2. But because you're breathing the same lungful of air, you won't notice. And they take that air tastes the same. You wouldn't notice there's a problem until you pass out. Ah. Or you get oxygen toxicity or you get CO2 poisoning or whatever but you wouldn't notice until you pass out. And that's the fundamental problem. So rebreathers have been made very, very safe by adding an awful lot of electronics to them that do that sensing for you. So it's quite alarming actually, when you're at sort of 40 meters and all these alarms start going off and you know, you're trained, most of your training is to deal, work out what that alarm is, um, bail out to a safety gas while you're waiting and then deal with the problem. But you can imagine, as with anything that relies on a lot of electronics and sensors there's there's the potential for it to go um, yeah to go no yeah. definitely it's not something i've ever i've not done it and i'm I, yeah i'm a bit weary of doing it because i'm again you train up and you'd be fine but like you say scuba you can just whop it on and off you go so i'd stick with that i think yeah it's for the time being, <laughs> for the time being. Uh, you you're also a producer on life in cold blood uh, and as you mentioned you've got a fascination with with snakes so i wonder what interests you so much about snakes I, I don't know really it doesn't make sense because they don't do as much as other things i've just always loved them um i met miles barton god bless him who, who um died uh, during covid lockdown um and his memorial service was wasn't so long ago he was the sewage producer on life in cold blood and i met him in the bbc bar and we just used to bore each other about reptiles and um <laughs> People in the BBC Naturalist Unit used to fall into generally two categories. You had the, the birders, people who liked birds, and the people who liked fluffy stuff. 
uh, sort of. And then everyone else was effectively an outcast. So if you liked <laughs> insects, fashion, fish, or reptiles, you're some kind of weirdo. And uh, which is, you know, probably um, probably fair enough. But um, yeah, so so I don't know. I've always loved them, and it was it was a brilliant brilliant privilege to work on that on that show. And um, I I think it's something physical about them. I I love. I hope no one's going to tell me there's some deep-seated psychological issues associated with that, but I've always loved them. I've kept them as pets. And um, oh, okay. Yeah. 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 There's something uh, quite special about snakes, isn't there? I guess in the UK, because it's, it's almost a treat to see a snake. It's not like some countries where you see them, you know, if you see a snake in the UK, it's more likely going to be a grass snake, but that is something, it's something special. I, I would say it's something special. It's very exotic. I mean, I and I've spent most of my life looking for snakes. When I even when I'm not filming them, if there's a quiet moment, I'll go around lifting up rocks, lifting up dead wood, climbing trees, having a poke around, and I hardly ever find them. They're not usually you see them when you're not looking for them. They're incredibly hard to find. Um, usually because of that, you know, they're cold-blooded. They're they're their lifestyle usually revolves around keep, keeping still a lot, and most of the animals are hard to spot. If an animal decides it doesn't want you to see it and it doesn't move you've got very little chance um fortunately most of the animals we love do move but um yeah i mean on life in cold blood we had the biggest problem with filming snakes is they don't do anything and when they do do something they give you no warning zero warning <laughs> you know you you would probably I, i'm sure when you're looking at fish you can tell what they're going to do by a you know a flick of a tail or a twitch of a fin yeah, or a, more or less yeah yeah, kingfishers do things before they dive in. You know, an elephant has tails, and and the great DOPs, the great wildlife filmmakers, when they work with animals a lot, just start to learn those things. Uh, snakes, nothing. Uh, angry snake, cross snake, emotional, you know, emotional state of a snake. It still looks poker <laughs> face. Still... They've just got a very good poker face. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh, was there any standout moments for you? I mean, obviously, if you're working with all these reptiles, you know, and you love reptiles, and it's just fantastic to work on that. Was there anything you were like, this is amazing? Uh, yeah, I mean, being film, filming rattlesnakes hunting for the first time uh, uh, for real was um, was a big moment, um, and that was cool. I mean, just because I'd, no one had done it before, um, and and we were lucky that you know we were able to tap into some technology at the time and camera traps were in their infancy then um and we so were they, able to they tap amb sorry james are they they ambush predators are they rattlesnakes yeah i mean a lot of snakes are all the vipers yeah. are so basically you've got to set a piece of kit up on a on a snake and um we used infrared sensors that would then trip and set the camera off but actually actually it wasn't the snake that was setting the camera off it was the mammal coming along and what, what I think, well, what we're pretty sure was going on was the snakes used their, I mean, it's actually interesting because a rattlesnake versus a mouse should be an even fight. Mouse, warm-blooded animal, mega fast, fast twitch, everything, super senses. You know, you don't catch a mouse easily. And for a rattlesnake to catch a mouse, it's a cold-blooded animal that doesn't move fast. When it does, it's in short bursts. Um, but it's got this super sensitive tongue that it can find out where the, the mouse had been running and it can uh, then lie in wait. It's probably smelling the urine trails, the scent trails that mammals leave. So it's using the mammals. Um, uh, it is an arms race, really. It's like battle tactics. 
uh, it's lame. It's then laying wait, and um, you know the snakes don't give off much of a scent, so that the mouse won't know it's there. Then it's using its heat-sensitive pits to time a strike. That okay, ninety-nine point nine percent of the time, snakes move very, very slowly, but they have this super-fast strike that that um, is quicker than a mouse can operate under. And um, and then they deliver venom, of course, which is sort of the ultimate <laughs> natural weapon um and uh yeah and we saw that happening and actually what i think there's more to it than has even been described i'm fairly sure that the venom is making the mouse evacuate its bowels so okay. that when it when it leaps off it gives two or three final spasmodic leaps to go and die the snake can then follow that trail okay. um, yeah so it, it's incredible it's like the special forces sort of version of uh of the animal world so i was very proud of that uh with um mark McKeon and luke barnett and uh, you know that would have been impossible without we always stand on the shoulders of giants and we stood on the shoulders of a scientific giant called um, harry green who um sort of pioneered uh radio telemetry of the the american reptiles um yeah so i was very proud of that and great to meet him and Use his work to help us does it ever get hard if you when you i mean i guess if you're more of a reptile fan you might not give such a shit about the mouse but does it ever get hard watching these animals be predated if you're say like the the, the rattlesnakes getting it or are you are you kind of like circular life I, I yeah i'm in the latter category i don't as long as i i've not seen cruelty in the animal world very often usually no, stuff no, no. i mean it would be hard for me to kill a mouse quicker than a rattlesnake can <laughs> For that rattlesnake to survive, a mouse has to die. Yeah. Uh, that's it. You know, I'm going to die someday. If I die as quickly as that mouse died when the rattlesnake hit it, that wouldn't be a bad way to go. No. no. Um, so no, I'm not. I, I'm not. Yeah, I'm much more circle of life stuff. I mean, you do see, you do see bad things occasionally. The Masai Mara. If you're squeamish, the Masai Mara is not a good place to go. No, we um, had um, we had Hugh Miles on the podcast, and oh, I was really, talk, yeah. talking to him about some of the stuff he's done, and he was saying like some of the lions and stuff. It can get a bit uh, a bit gory. Oh, it's, it's horrific. I was on a project recently with um, two great great guys, uh, Sam Stewart and Simon King. Yeah, and yeah, I know Sam. I went to uni with him. You know Sam, yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. we were filming. We were filming um, in the, the Serengeti. And the famous uh, um, river crossings where, and people, you know, presumably they sign up to a safari because they think it's like the Lion King. <laughs> and people are lined up on the side of the river in their trucks and the, the wildebeest come across, thousands of them, and you see these crocodiles that are like dinosaurs. Is that your dog? That's my, no, that's my dog ch chiming in now. Sorry, because I was really encouraged. <laughs> Pepper, shush. Yes, shush, Pepper. Come on, <laughs> telling a fascinating anecdote. Um, yeah, so so huge crocodiles smash a few of these wildebeest, and many more die. Uh, we had big waters of flooding down the 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 Mara River that year, so many more got swept away. They break their. Le I mean, you're, so these people are sat in their cars, and they have, um, you know, posh drinks and breakfast is being laid out, and there's wildebeest coming up that that riverbank with broken legs and and then they all run off so the um the guides set out tables with um you know uh flambéed breakfast and eggs and bottles of champagne 
And then you hear this second stampede and you wonder what that is. And it's all the baby wildebeest coming back to the river to look for their mummies. Uh, yeah, can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so you've paid for this, you know, ridiculously expensive holiday and, and you didn't, no one told you about, you know, you're about to see nature properly red in tooth and claw. Um, I find that, I mean, that's that's obviously not particularly nice, but but it is what happens. And I actually think um, I, I eat meat. I don't eat a lot of it. I've tried to get better at it, but I've never hidden away from what is involved in death and predation of, of the natural world. No. Mostly it's over pretty quickly. I mean, certainly anything that gets hit by a Nile crocodile doesn't, that's not, a, that's not um, it's over pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I tell you what, I'm, I'm a big, I'm actually more interested in reptiles than fish. Weird. I don't really get much chance to talk about reptiles are my big thing. And I, I'd love to see the crocs doing that. That'd just be incredible. Oh. Wouldn't it? Just, you know, because they're pretty, some of them are pretty big, aren't they? Some of these Nile crocodiles just smashing. Huge, yeah. So, Simon King used to categorise them if he's seen it probably as much as anyone on earth, I would imagine. He was telling me that um, you've got different sizes of crocs. You've got crocs that are small and get out of the way. You've got a crocs that are big enough to have half a go, but they're not really going to take down a wildebeest. They might get some scraps, um, but they'll also get equally, they would get damaged if the wildebeest go over the top of them. So they they sit around at the edges. Would they be the adolescent equivalent? I suppose they would. And then you've got the big crocs, and these big crocs are big enough to pull down uh, a wildebeest. And you'll see them, they'll come in from the side, and it's this bow wave, and you'll see the nose come up, and this is the wildebeest will disappear and then there's a fourth category of crocodile that's so big like these grametti dinosaurs and they sit right in the front of 800 wildebeest and the first hundred will come straight over the top of them and it they do not even care and they'll just come up open their mouth and they're not actually it may not be that spectacular because it's over in a second i mean i mean like big enough to eat half of zebra in one bite type wow yeah, and, and they are, you know, I don't know how old they are, uh, 40 years plus, who knows. Um, Have you ever heard yeah. about the Nile crocodile called Gustav? We're going off on a tangent now, but there's there's a there's a Nile crocodile. I don't know if it's still going. There was a Nat Geo documentary on it years ago. And there was, a, I can't remember whereabouts in Africa it was, but there was a Nile crocodile and the locals named it Gustav. And it had a, a parrot. I mean, how true this is and how you count it up. It had over 300 human kills attributed to it. Just over the years, it had gotten fishermen and, and whatever in there. And it was a it was a beast of a crocodile. And it was a French film crew that went to go find it. And I don't think, they, they never caught it, but they filmed it. And it was riddled with bullet holes in the back of it. Because it's these things are tied so tough. But it was enormous. It's a huge Nile crocodile. You know, whether it had personally killed 300, but it, it was certainly a man-eater. I mean, it was huge, absolutely enormous Nile crocodile that had a go at it. That's amazing. That yeah. is amazing. There'll be more info yeah. online somewhere. Maybe that's a podcast for another day. But yeah, Gustav the Nile Crocodile is an absolute monster. Well, yeah, I worked on a project called Big Cat Diary back in the day. And yeah. um, we had a, a, a sort of blowout party. And in the middle of the party, one of the cameramen went down to the river and was, I don't know, five metres away from the water. And he he'd had a few drinks and he picked up a bread roll and he threw it into the water saying it's safe in there there's no crocodiles and as, as the bread roll hit the water there was an explosion and he uh he beat a hasty retreat back a safe distance to the bar but yeah i mean 
you would, I mean, swimming across the Mara rivers, one thing they never did. And um, what was, what was that um, show where people hurt themselves and, annoy, and, you know, staple gun their hands. To oh, uh, jackass, jackass. Jackass. Yeah. 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 You'd never see anyone doing that. On <laughs> tell you, Cause it would be a, it would be a short swim. Yeah. yeah. You went across the wrong, the wrong bit of the Mara river. Yeah. That wouldn't get, be good. You'd get munched, wouldn't you? And and obviously that was Attenborough working on that series as as the narrator. What what was it like working with him? Oh, he's um he's exactly like you expect. He's like your favorite uncle. He loves telling stories. He loves um you know the best times with him were after filming had finished, and um you know he's got a glass of red wine and he he's a storyteller, and that doesn't end when the camera stops rolling. He'll tell you stories. And they're all the same kinds of stories that that I've grown up listening to in rugby clubs. And my father's a great storyteller and you get rugby clubs got a big storytelling tradition. But David's stories always involve, you know, the king of Tonga. And um, <laughs> it's just another <laughs> level, another level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. His stories are amazing. He, he He's, uh, you know, he's he's a great guy. And um, I'm just trying to think of it as an Attenborough story I could tell you that's... Uh, that's you know broadcastable and appropriate. <laughs> I mean, he, yeah. He's uh, he also. I mean, one of the most special times I had with him was um, we had a day off, and we were in Adelaide, and he took we went to the Adelaide Museum, which has I think one of the best collections of Polynesian art, and it was myself and David and the production coordinator Jenny Colley, and David is one of the world's. Um, recognized academic experts on Polynesian artifacts. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't. Uh, he's got a show about um, uh, about a statue that was on possibly one of Captain Cook's ships that came from Easter Island, carved on wood that now no longer exists. You know, that's the kind of thing he's collected all his life. And he's, he's um, you know, quite away from his TV job. He's an expert on that. And he took us around that museum. I mean, just what a pleasure and he had a story about everything absolutely <laughs> everything um and he's charming and everyone knows him so that's tricky um uh but and and, and he gets misidentified as well he gets called richard all the time which oh, he never yeah. I, I we were in an australian supermarket and someone came up to him and said i loved you in gandhi <laughs> and he said uh well, that wasn't me. It was my brother, and he's not in it. He directed it. But, but other than that, you got it bang yeah. on. Um, I've actually, I've been in a bar with him. We were stayed in this bar on the outskirts of Brisbane, and um, we went into uh, uh, the. We we had a meal, and next door there was a fairly rowdy bar showing the Australia versus New Zealand rugby league game. David loves rugby. Uh, okay. We used to bore each other about rugby. He played played rugby um when he was in the navy so we went to watch this rugby league game and at half time you can imagine what a bar on the outskirts of brisbane that's showing australia versus new zealand at rugby leagues like it's you know it's fairly um some fairly colorful language a lot of yeah, beard, beard and we sat at the back and watched this good game and at half time they had an advert and the advert someone was mimicking david attenborough <laughs> and one by one everyone turned around in this bar and realized it was him so um a lot of kind of bizarre and, it, and the other thing that happens with him is when you're with him stuff happens so <laughs> we we were in perth and we got invited to have drinks with al gore because he was in perth and his people found out that david was there and you know one thing leads to another yeah. and you're 
sat on a table with Al Gore thinking this wouldn't happen to me if I wasn't uh, if I wasn't with David Attenborough. Yeah. So, just weird yeah. circumstance after weird circumstance. But no, that sounds sounds fantastic. But before we go, I'll ask one more. So seeing all the, the natural spectacles across the globe, has it changed or influenced you as a person in any way? Because obviously it's quite a, a unique job that you get to see all these amazing places and these amazing wildlife spectacles. Has any of that changed you as as an individual? Hugely, hugely. Um, I just think I'm phenomenally lucky. I still get massive imposter syndrome and I'm 47. I've been doing it a long time. Um, uh, excuse me, dog's barking. Uh, my dog this time. This is yeah. Lola. We'll take turns. We'll take turns. Yeah. <laughs> go out. Hold on. Lola, I'm talking about my life story here. <laughs> Keep it as well. Get a, one of these days you'll be able to tell a story without a dog barking halfway through. Or an interrupting it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it has changed me. I, I think... Um, I've met, I th- it's mostly about people though. I, th- I think I started out thinking wildlife spectacles were amazing and that has not changed and it's not diminished one little bit. And I could go back, if, if, if you said to me, you'd see some of the things you saw at the start of your career, I'd be no less wowed by them. Um, so that my attitude and, and excitement about animals hasn't changed at all, actually, at all. Um, you know, the scientific understanding and the changing world has, but I think actually it's more about people in that, I've seen how much you can achieve with passion and drive. I think I used to think it was about all about ability or intelligence or uh, talent, whatever that means. And most of the people I've seen who operate at the highest level, who they, they have picked something they enjoy or they're passionate about, and they've just not taken no for an answer. And, um, and that, that's, you know, I wish I could impart that, to my younger self um i take my time i mean i've always been up for enjoy to me enjoyment's more important the process is more important than the end and um i think i was sort of that way when i started out i'm more that way now definitely um there's just no point agonizing over things you can't control and and worrying about you know if your film's going to win awards or everyone loves it or what does everyone think of it i'd you know, by far now, my priority is enjoying the process, loving the process. And um, if you're lucky, that'll make a great show, I think. Um, I mean, I could I could, I could, could talk about, you know, the, the, the changes that the planet's going through. Not all bad, actually. Um, and I could tell you, a st- I can't actually, because it's, it is on a top secret program. Well, a secret program I'm working on at the moment. We've been fortunate enough to film something that didn't used to happen a hundred years ago because because um, people have stopped abusing the natural world. So those there are stories of great um, great reasons to give hope. But I think yeah, I think the one thing that's my that's changed my attitude is is just the people I've met who are extraordinarily passionate. Every and and often about quite small little areas of life. It might be someone that's studying you know a, a single little snail or a a fish in a river or a, or a anemone on a, on a coral reef. And, um, and those things are really important and actually it's really cool. And I've been very privileged to meet them and see what they do. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I think that's a really interesting point that you make about just doing your own thing, I guess, and not worrying too much about the award side of things or, um, or anything like that. I mean, I, I certainly 
I used to worry about every little thing. And now I, I'm quite happy with how my work turns out. Like it's not not necessarily the best in the world, but it works and it, it pays the bills. And that's my main uh, priorities in life are, do I like what I'm doing? Is it paying the bills? And as long as it hits those two, that's what I, that's all I'm really concerned about. And it does do that. So I'm a lot more chilled out with what I do than I used to. I used to worry about, oh, am I doing the right thing? And, and now I just sort of, again, another river pun, we'll get a few in, but I go with the flow, so to speak. And it's- Go it's with the flow. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a, do you have, um, a sort of stock uh, load of river freshwater puns? I bet you do. I've heard them all. I've absolutely, you know, I have a bream and stop carving yeah. on or, uh, oh, there's loads. Of, I, I, I could, I should do a book really on it. Just bad fish puns for, da- uh, for dads or something. Bad fish puns. So whenever you go anywhere, if you're if you're with the right, I'm, as I've said, I like I like to enjoy myself on shoots, and I always try and go away with people with a sense of humour. And one of the games is you know, whatever animal you're filming is is get as many silly jokes regarding that that animal as as possible. Um, it never gets tired, funnily enough. Um, yeah. <laughs> or they're too polite to say anything, James. Oh yeah, it could be that. Yeah. <laughs> I've ruined, I've ruined every shoot for you now. Oh, they're all just being really yeah, nice. I to thought me. they liked me. It's just because I'm in charge, and they're just being. <laughs> well, so, yeah. I mean, it's great it's, joke, boss. <laughs> it's just an option, you know. Might not necessarily. You you could be really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I may be a bit funny. I doubt no. it though. <laughs> Look, it's been a pleasure to catch up with you, and I'll uh, I'll see you around. Cheers. No problem, Jack. Take care. Good to speak to you. Bye. Bye. That was James Brickle. Great to catch up with him. It's been a while and a great insight into the work that he does. I really like the bit of career advice he gave as well there. Saying yes to everything and not burdening the person who's given you the job. So essentially, uh, if the producer says go and film that, don't lay loads of questions at that producer's feet. Ask someone else. Annoy another producer. And then that one is going to be like, oh, wow, okay, you've just gone off and done this. So I think that's a really great piece of advice. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, at TitBearded, and there's a Facebook page, The Bearded Tits Podcast. Next Tuesday, I'm speaking to Tanya Esteban as we discuss if she enjoys the editing process, what it's like working for Netflix, and what her role as an assistant producer entitles. This has been The Bearded Tits Podcast. I've been your host, Jack Perks, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.